0: Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Marilyn Glenville, one of England's leading nutritionists. Dr. Glenville is the former president of the Food and Health Forum at the Royal Society of Medicine, a registered nutritionist, psychologist, author, and popular broadcaster who obtained her doctorate from Cambridge University. She's the author of 14 internationally best-selling books, many of which have become the standard reference books for practitioners. And Dr. Glenville is here today on Health Watch to talk about her book, Natural Solutions for Dementia and Alzheimer's, The Ultimate Guide to Prevent Short-Term Memory Loss. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Marilyn Glenville.
1: Thank you, David. Lovely to be speaking to you.
0: So why don't we start out with what's probably on most people's minds who are concerned about dementia or Alzheimer's. How do we tell the difference between normal forgetfulness with age and the early signs of either dementia or Alzheimer's.
1: Well, there will be changes as we get older and many people experience going into a room and can't remember what they went in there for or just not being able to grab hold of uh, a word that we know quite well. But there are some signs that something may be amiss and that's when it would be good to go and get see their doctor and get a checkup where people may be repeatedly asking the same questions, forgetting a lot of the common words or saying a word Say bed instead of table, so they're actually confusing the words. Finding it difficult to do familiar tasks that they could do easily, such as following a recipe, and, and putting things in inappropriate places, such as putting the wallet in the fridge, not being able to walk or drive around a familiar neighborhood, so not being able to find there where they would go normally, and it should be easy to remember. And there can also be changes in mood or behavior for no apparent reason. So those would be when to start worrying. Obviously, we can have just mild changes as we get older, but those would be the signs where somebody should think, well, I need to go and see my doctor.
0: And and you offer a, a cognitive impairment test within the book, but you also make clear that once you see your doctor, there isn't one test that's going to lead to diagnosis, that there's not a perfect one thing to do, but there's a variety of things that are being explored as, as ways to piece together a diagnosis. Can you talk about some of the, the tests that might be done?
1: Yes, they're trying obviously to come up with a way of of having a definite diagnosis. I mean, they can do lumbar puncture, but it is uncomfortable and there can be side effects from it. They're looking into a blood test that could look for the presence of particular proteins in the blood. And that may be something that may be coming out in the future. And also interestingly, they've been looking at a possible eye test because they are seeing changes in the eye and the thickness of the neurons on the retina which may have an indication of what's going on in the brain as well and there is a, seems to be a link between Alzheimer's and age-related macular degeneration so there may be ways in the future they're thinking of looking at a, a sniff test because people with Alzheimer's have a different ability to smell so there's been some research on that um, and obviously, the memory test that has been the six-item cognitive impaired, impairment tests, but it is a tricky one. So it may be a cluster of tests in the end that are going to be helpful.
0: And, and what are some of the things that intrigue you in terms of investigation around Alzheimer's and or dementia? and causes. I know there isn't one cause, it's probably multifactorial, but what are some of the things that um, seem to be pointing us in some informative directions?
1: Well I think the the interesting one is that it's not powerful in terms of the genetic side of it and the Alzheimer's Association in America says that genetics are only responsible for about five percent of all Alzheimer's cases so we really need to be thinking about how can we look at this in different ways and when I wrote the when I was doing the research for the Alzheimer's book, it was clear that there's a lot of good evidence in terms of nutrition and lifestyle factors and as you said, it's going to be a multifactorial approach that's going to be working. They have tried looking for the magic bullet from the pharmaceutical side but the the trials haven't been good and there hasn't been a new drug license for 14 years now. So it's not working very well because I think we have to look at this from a number of factors all at the same time, and even do that to think about prevention.
0: And and do you have any thoughts or theories on why people with diabetes, for instance, have a a 50% or more, increase risk of getting Alzheimer's disease?
1: Yes, that's very interesting. And there has been suggestions that Alzheimer's should be called type 3 diabetes. And it is the effect of glucose and insulin on the brain that is having a very detrimental effect in terms of cognitive function. So it is important that we think about keeping our risk of type 2 diabetes very low because in itself, like you said, can give us a 50 to 60% increased risk of Alzheimer's. So there may just be physical things that we could be doing that's going to make a huge difference, not only to Alzheimer's itself, but even those changes where we don't think we're remembering very well, our short-term memory isn't as good as it could be because we want to keep our brain as sharp as possible as well as preventing a degenerative illness.
0: And then what about some of the suggestive evidence around inflammation and even infection in the brain that could be playing a role in the plaque buildup that is so commonly seen in Alzheimer's?
1: Yes, there's been some interesting research from Harvard where they're actually suggesting, well, why don't we think about the underlying cause of how could we, what is why is the plaque building up and what is the mechanism there? And some of the suggestions is that it may be in response to an infection. So actually... It could be a good thing at the beginning that the body's trying to encase something to stop it spreading further into the brain. But it also means, though, that we then would have to treat the underlying infection in order then to stop that plaque spreading. So that's where... Some of the research is looking at could there be an underlying infection that be making a difference. We also know that some of the -the over-the-counter medications like the proton pump inhibitors that a lot of people use for acid reflux could increase the risk of Alzheimer's by 44%. So there could be very simple lifestyle things and even some of the cold and sleep remedies are going to block acetylcholine which is we know is low in people with Alzheimer's so I think if people knew especially if they've got a strong family history risk and they're worried about that that could there be small simple changes that they could make that could be making a big difference
0: In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Dr. Marilyn Glenville about her book, Natural Solutions for Dementia and Alzheimer's, The Ultimate Guide to Prevent Short-Term Memory Loss. Uh, You mentioned some of the risk factors, and and there are some other ones like um, smoking, which you rarely hear about, is actually a risk factor for developing Alzheimer's.
1: Yes, and the other... Within this category, umbrella term of dementia, we have Alzheimer's there, which occurs in about 50 to 70% of cases. And we also have vascular dementia, which happens in about 20 to 30% of cases. And that's a problem with blood flow. And when you think of what smoking does in terms of blood vessels around the heart, it's going to be causing an issue in terms of blood vessels in the brain. So whatever we're working on in terms of our physical health and things that we know that are not good for our physical health like smoking we need to think of it in the same way that we should do for our brain
0: well let's start with your your step one to your your program for brain protection which is diet what sort of research do we have on diet in relationship to uh, preserving memory
1: well, we mentioned about type 2 diabetes and in the, the risk by up to 50-60%. to 60%. So keeping blood sugar under control and going for a more low glycemic index diet is going to be really useful. So food that's going to not cause a spike in blood sugar, that's not going to cause an excess production of insulin. And where the research has looked at, when we think of the Mediterranean diet and the benefits in terms of cardiovascular disease and Possibly other factors as well. Then they're looking at this in terms of also Alzheimer's and dementia. So it has had good research on it, and they're thinking it could reduce the risk of cognitive decline by up to 35%. So it is thinking about the same way of eating that we want for our physical health that we also want for our mental health as well so good research there and all the things we think about all the different color fruit and vegetables the nuts and seeds the oily fish all of those fresh fruits and veg that we know are part of the mediterranean diet we need for our memory and brain function just the same as we need for our heart health as well
0: So what would be maybe the top three or four foods that you would cut out or that serve no purpose in terms of memory uh, protection or might even harm you?
1: I would have to put the top one as sugar. I would do. Yes, I would. Um, The added sugar that's not not the sugar naturally contained in an apple or fruit and vegetables but the added sugar that's creeping in to a lot of the foods and not even the ones that would be obvious like the cakes and biscuits. We can see it in spaghetti sauces, mayonnaise, salad dressing. So it's, it, we call it hidden sugar in that case because people are eating a savoury food but it has the sugar in. And some of the researchers suggested that even if people don't add sugar to their tea or coffee some people can be getting up to 46 teaspoons of added sugar a day because it's hidden in all of these other foods and it has the biggest effect in terms of our general health increase in obesity which increases risk of cancer but type 2 diabetes and also our brain function as well so i think people should really now think about reading the label on their foods and it may come under different disguises that may say sucrose there may be dextrose um fructose also has issues around um doesn't cause a spike in insulin but it's known to cause problems with a fatty liver so it's looking for sugar in its all of its different disguises that may be in a lot of the foods that we already buy
0: and there's some interesting research um, some of it in England in fact around intermittent fasting can can you do you have any thoughts on intermittent fasting and in people who are not eating one day a week or only eating one meal a day for a certain number of days a week in, in regards to dementia prevention is that something that is promising to you or does that are you are you skeptical of it
1: well I think can be useful i think people have to be very careful if there are um, issues with their health so they may already be diabetic we're talking about pregnancy there will be certain situations where fasting may not be suitable or they may have a history of an eating disorder or if they start to feel dizzy during the day if they're not eating and what i found with the patients I work with in the clinic that if somebody's got chronic fatigue or they're under a lot of stress it actually makes the stress response stronger because fasting is a stress because the body perceives there's a shortage of food so there will be some people where it's not going to be good idea to go there but there are ways and what's interesting is when we look at the research that our body has a process called autophagy and it's like a house clearing system it's where the body can come to actually clear out dead cells and pathogens so it's good for our general health it's also good for our brain function as well and what the research is suggesting is for us to leave three hours between our last meal and going to bed and then not eating for 12 hours. So we can actually have our evening meal at 8, go to bed at 11, and then have breakfast at 8 a.m. So it does work. We've got a 12-hour fast, basically, but we're doing it through the evening and overnight, and that works perfectly well for a lot of people and is one that is very manageable and that they could keep going over a long period of time. The other fasting may be more difficult for people to sustain.
0: So if we move on to your your second step in in your um, brain protection plan, which is uh, supplementation, what are some of the ones that rise to the top for you that you feel most uh, confident in recommending to people?
1: I think the top one from the research has to come out as omega-3 essential fatty acids. And we get those from oily fish. We get them from egg yolks. They can be in flax seeds as well. And really interesting and amazing research on it and there was a study over eight years where they took blood levels of people's omega-3 they also put them through mri scanners and they found that the hippocampus and that's the part of the brain that's so important for cognitive function and unfortunately shrinks with alzheimer's it was smallest in those people who had the lowest omega-3 levels so In the clinic, I think it's one of the most important tests that I do, and measuring the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3. And we call these essential fatty acids because we cannot make them in our body. The only way we get them in is either from the food or supplementation. And I specialize a lot in women's health, and a lot of women have done no-fat or low-fat diets. And for them, All fat is bad and they've cut out these essential fats as well. So that's not been healthy and they can have higher levels of omega-6 which come through things like evening primrose oil and a lot of vegetable oils which actually create an inflammatory response in the body and that inflammation could be in the joints where people are complaining about things like arthritis but there could be an inflammatory response going on in the brain, or it may be changing also blood flow, which then increases the risk of vascular dementia. So these omega-3s are essential. We need to be eating them because our bodies cannot make them.
0: And so other than eating more uh, cold water, wild fish and nuts and seeds, do you also recommend people take it as a supplement?
1: I do, and I think particularly... um, if people are not keen on eating those foods and especially over the age of 50 I would say to put them in obviously I can test blood tests and, and then decide how much somebody might need of these omega 3s in order to correct an imbalance or a deficiency but I would suggest that most people should be taking them and it's the DHA which is one of the components of the omega 3 which has been shown to prevent amyloid plaque formation and improving blood flow and reducing inflammation so really good research something simple that we could add in that's going to reduce inflammation everywhere in the body generally and that's going to be useful for any kind of joint pains or an inflammatory bowel disorder so these i i think there are certain nutrients that we are maybe not going to get enough in our diet or people people say to me, well, I don't like oily fish, I'm not going to eat it. And that's where I think supplementation can be so important.
0: And I know you, you you mentioned that you test people to figure out the dosage, but do you have a, a sort of a baseline starting dosage that um, you would recommend for people? Or do you really recommend they get that testing first?
1: Well, I think for a lot of people, the easiest way is to go for an omega-3 supplement that and not to look at the amount of Fish oil in there. They need about an EPA of 770 milligrams a day and a DHA of about 510. There are some supplements I use. It is a UK company. It's called under Natural Health Practice.com. Some of them may be in America as well, but it's the kind of level that we're looking at. There needs to be good levels of DHA as well as EPA. They are the two omega 3 parts that people should be looking for and not just the quantity of how much fish oil is in the capsule.
0: So to continue this discussion of things we may not be getting enough in our diet, I'm I'm sure probably in England, like here in Portland, Oregon, there's a lot of people who are deficient in vitamin D and, Mm. and there's some research around vitamin D deficiency, at, at least correlating with an increased risk of dementia. Can, can you talk about um, how you go about um, vitamin D in your practice?
1: Yes, it has been an interesting one. And and. We've now got rickets back in the UK in children which we thought we'd got rid of 40 years ago. So this has become a bit of a public health crisis with the government now intervening and making definite suggestions of how much vitamin D children should be taking every day, pregnant women and even adults through our winter when our immune systems can be low. So this is something that's actually become a public health issue and it's interesting again it's another one that i think is important for people to test for because they're not necessarily any symptoms whatsoever and because we've taken the message to stay out of the sun or in the uk we don't probably get as much as you do um but people have been wearing sunscreen and a lot of women will have moisturizers or cosmetics on which will have inbuilt sun protection factors so they may not even think they've got a sunblock on there but they have and And the research is showing that even if someone is moderately deficient in vitamin D, they've got a 53% increased risk of dementia, and that increases by 125% if they're severely deficient. So it's one of those that we don't get very much from our food again we'd get some from oily fish some eggs and some of the fortified foods but our body expects us to manufacture this vitamin through the exposure of the sun through the skin so i think it's one of those nutrients that really should be tested because we've had some situations in the uk where the lab in some of the samples have found no trace of vitamin d whatsoever
0: One of the things that a lot of people do who are worried about short-term memory loss, or maybe they have a family member with dementia, is is doing brain games, keeping their brain active. And there's some you you mentioned in your brain training section of the book that there's some controversy around the effectiveness of some of them, particularly some of the electronic brain games. But can you can you talk a little bit about what role, if any, you feel like? doing crossword puzzles or or learning another language or other things might um, benefit somebody in, in terms of prevention of memory loss or improving brain function?
1: Yes, and I think we have to think of our brain almost like a muscle, that if we don't use it, we're going to lose it, and it will atrophy and it can shrink. We expect to exercise our muscles and the thinking is that we need to do the same with our brain. And interesting, it's it, this idea now that brain function is not fixed. We do have this degree of plasticity that uh, we can learn new tricks as we get older and there has been some good research um, a lot of it in America in looking at people reading, dancing, playing board games and particularly ones like learning a musical instrument has been shown to reduce the risk of uh, dementia and even just any general activities and interesting with crossword puzzles they've looked at that and it can delay the memory decline by two and a half years so it doesn't have to be a fancy gadget or something that's electronic it can just be the simple uh, learning and board games and card games particularly and also learning a second language has been shown to be very powerful I think it's because it's making our brain work that we've got that stimulation it is fine firing up networks within the brain. So the more we can use our brain like we would our muscles, the better it's going to be. And I think with some of the activities... For instance, if we think of dancing or even playing board games, there is also a social aspect and they have looked at that in that social side makes a big difference. And then if you think of dancing, you've got the physical activity and then you've got the memory of the different movements. So some activities are going to give us a number of benefits because it's combining a number of things that we know are going to be helpful in reducing or delaying memory Decline.
0: And then you have another section, Dr. Glenville, on sleep. And a lot of people I, I bet would be surprised to learn how important sleep is specifically for brain health and prevention of brain disease. Can, can you um, speak a little bit about the research around sleep?
1: Yes, it's interesting because obviously we all vary in the amounts of sleep that we do often get. But the suggestion is that it's much better if we can have a prolonged period of sleep without interruption. And it's, we seem to have this situation where the cerebral spinal fluid, when we sleep... The brain seems to get smaller, slightly smaller, and this fluid can wash through. They've done the the studies on animals at the moment, but this fluid washes through and clears out the debris, so we've got sort of a a bit of a spring clean as we're going to sleep. And as we wake up again, this whole brain situation expands again, but it's getting smaller as we sleep in order to allow more of this cerebral spinal fluid to flow through and wash out what they call brain waste chemicals during the night. So it has been shown that having a good amount of sleep is really beneficial in terms of brain function and memory decline. And also what is also interesting is that the position that we sleep and they found that actually if we sleep on our side, then the effect of this um, cerebral spinal fluid washing through is actually stronger. So if we can get a good interrupted amount of sleep, it's going to be beneficial and maybe sleep on our side if if people can manage that.
0: Well, you mentioned you mentioned earlier testing for omega-3 levels, which is not something that a lot of conventional doctors do. Are there other tests that maybe are outside of um, what people might get at a typical doctor's visit that you would definitely recommend that they, they ask for when going in for screening?
1: Yeah. So I think if they can get some nutritional tests done, I would always say check for deficiencies where possible antioxidant vitamins and minerals specifically though for me the two most important tests would be vitamin d and this omega-6 to 3 ratio because if the omega-6 is a much too high there's going to be a pro-inflammatory effect my other ones would be thinking about measuring homocysteine which is an amino acid which the body should detoxify and if it doesn't there is a toxic effect and it is linked to higher risk of Alzheimer's. So it's something that can be reduced by three of the B vitamins, B6, B12 and folate. So we have ways of making a difference once we know something might be in the abnormal range. I'd ask somebody to be checked for diabetes risk and also whether there could be a risk around Any heavy metals like aluminium and mercury so there could be other ways and a medical checkup is really useful in terms of blood pressure all of the other liver kidney function checks but there can be some add-on nutritional ones which give a different value and are looking at somebody's health in a different way and I think then if we put the two together the medical and nutritional somebody's getting the best of both worlds there
0: well, Dr. Glenville, we're almost out of time, and I was hoping maybe you could mention your website if you have one in England that people could check out if they're interested in the book
1: yes thank you david it's MarilynGlenville.com. it's an educational website people are very happy to um, take the information they need from there there's another website called naturalhealthpractice.com where there are simple tests that could be done by post like a finger prick test for omega six and three ratio and also some of the um, others i mentioned like the omega-3 fish oil as well a good one is on there and my book natural solutions for dementia and outside is available from Amazon, which I think people might find interesting in terms of the research that's there on looking at these, you know, this cognitive side in a completely different way.
0: Well, thanks again for being on the show today.
1: Thank you very much, David. Nice to speak
0: to you. We're talking today to Dr. Marilyn Glenville, the author of Natural Solutions for Dementia and Alzheimer's. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David and your host. Stay tuned for the rest of the Monday morning radio zine. Next up is Madness Radio. This podcast was produced at KBOO Community Radio in Portland, Oregon.
1: KBOO.fm Thanks for listening. KBOO.